Well, today we're starting a brand new series, and I'm so glad that you're here today uh, because this is one of the most important series that we have probably ever done and may ever do. Um, We're we're going to do a series called One, and I'll explain a little bit more about that in just a minute. But before I get there, I, I wonder if you've ever been a part of a dumb church fight. Anybody? It's okay to admit it. I I ask, like I'm asking. Have you ever been a part of a dumb church fight? Anybody? Uh, Four of you will admit it. The rest of you must have caused it. No, no, no. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm playing. If you've never been in a good old-fashioned dumb church fight, you had lived. Because I'm going to tell you some of the dumbest things that have ever happened have happened in churches. No, No offense to anybody who would be offended. Uh, If you are offended, it might be you. But let me say this. I'm going to give you the top 10 dumbest church fights that I've heard of. One is, uh, uh, and when I say fight, I don't mean disagreement. I mean like we got to call a business meeting and we got to vote and we got to, like it's got to get ugly. One was over the length of the worship pastor's beard. Yeah. And critical, eternal things. The second one is, do we use the church land for a children's playground or a cemetery? <laughs> now, I want you to consider the implications of that. Do you, what do you think that says about that church's future? Do we remove the clock on the wall in the sanctuary? And most of you said, please don't do it. <laughs> Here's one. Which picture of Jesus do we put in the foyer? Well, since we don't have a picture of him, I'd say none of them. Just a thought. Number five, a church budget was, came up short. Now, you know that's a problem, financial mismanagement. You can understand how that could be a problem. But a church budget fell short, and they couldn't reconcile it all. So they had a big business meeting and a big church fight, and the fight lasted for hours, and the shortfall was 10 cents. And it finally ended when somebody got a stroke of wisdom, donated a dime, and said, can we all go home? And that ended it. Here's a critical one. Grape juice or cran grape for communion? (laughs) Critical. Critical. One church fought so hard over whether they ought to buy a weed eater or not, it took two business meetings to come to a conclusion. Two. Number eight, should the church allow deviled eggs at church meals? You know why. I don't even have to tell you why. Do I? Because the word devil is in the egg. All right, I'll let you work that one out. One church split because one church member hid the church vacuum cleaner from another one. I, I can't even begin to wrap my brain around that one. And uh, number 10, a, a, a church fought for hours because they couldn't decide if they ought to sing happy birthday every Sunday because every week is somebody's birthday. Now, um, the way that you're laughing lets me know that maybe, maybe you've never been in one of those dumb fights or maybe you have and those, laugh, those laughters are healing to you somehow. But... There's something inside all of us that wants to believe that we're right. 
and that our way is the only way, or at least it's the best way. And most of the things that we fight about have to do with our ego or our preference. And it's so easy for us to get sucked into believing that the non-negotiables are negotiable and the negotiables are non-negotiable. We get that backwards. So do you think, though, that this kind of, if it weren't so sad, it'd be funny. Do you think that this is the vision that Jesus had for his church? That's an important question, and I'll tell you why. Because we live in a very divided culture. It's politically divided. It's racially divided. It's socially divided, relationally divided. Marriages divide. Homes divide. Neighbors divide. Friends even divide. And so far, it looks like politics and education and psychology and science don't have an answer. But I've got good news for you today. Jesus actually has the answer. Jesus had a powerful vision for the church and for every believer on earth. And shortly before Jesus died, we get a glimpse of this vision in a prayer that he prayed to the Father. John 17, verse 20 and 21, Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. In other words, my prayer is not for the 12 disciples I have sitting here looking at me now. It's not just for them. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So all believers everywhere across all time, that look at verse 21, that all of them, not some of them, not part of them, not the, not the rich, not the poor, not the, any given race, all of them may be one. That's what the name of the series is. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Why? Then, then, the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. So what is Jesus' vision? Jesus' vision is that we would be as connected to one another as believers as he was to the Father. Man, that's a, that's a strong connection. And that oneness is so powerful. Jesus said it's the way the whole world is going to know that God loves them. In other words, if God can cause these kind of people to love each other, if God can take these rebels and these rough rousers and these broke down people and these dysfunctional people, these people that are so different from each other, if he can take them and weld them together in such a way that they love each other, he must be a God of love. And if he can create that reaction in them, his love is so powerful, maybe he loves me too. That's the testimony of the church to the whole world. And it's different than any other organization or politics or education or anything else will ever produce. And you can read more about it in Ephesians 4. Now, the first three chapters of Ephesians is this rich conversation and, and uh, an encouraging description of God's salvation and grace. But beginning at uh, chapter 4, Paul moves in with an uppercut. And he starts talking about grace's responsibility. And so that's where we're going to pick it up in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, just a side note, suffering always makes things clear, doesn't it? 
as a prisoner for the Lord, things get crystal clear when you suffer. What's really important gets very clear. He's writing from jail. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live. Okay, so salvation is not just about heaven. Salvation is about now. It's about life. It's about you and I have been given a calling and a destiny and a purpose in this life. So it's not just about heaven. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So what does this calling look like? It looks like a group of people who are humble, gentle, patient, tolerant, and love give their best effort to keep unity of peace. Now, verse 4, this is where we're going to focus the series. This is where we get this list of ones. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. So there's seven lists of ones. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. But there's a reason that the first one is first. Because when Paul the Apostle wrote the book of Ephesians, it was his primary concern. So we actually put them in order. And one body is listed first because this is the number one concern for Paul. Most of the time when you read the word body in the New Testament, it's a metaphor for church. Okay, so here's the theology. When Jesus walked the earth, whose body did he walk in? Well, his, right? He was Jesus' body. But something supernatural happened when Jesus died, resurrected, and went to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. He basically says now... What was in my body as a single individual person is now in all believers all over the world. Now the church is Jesus' body. So that's where that language comes from. So when Jesus lived in his body, he preached the gospel, healed the sick, forgave sinners, set people free, and did good everywhere that he went. Now that Jesus is gone, the church is Jesus' body. And the church is to pick up where Jesus left off. That's what body means. Now, why one body? Well, there was a heated debate at that time among whether people who were not Jewish and part of God's original chosen people could be part of the church or not. By the way, how many of you are not Jewish? So glad they got that worked out. We, we wouldn't have made it. God wants it to be crystal clear that this, that this body is one body. And this church is one church. It has Jews in it and it has Gentiles in it. Today we would say it like this. It has Hispanic people in it and black people and Asian people and white people and young people and old people and single people and married and children and poor and rich and middle class. See, this is a heavenly gathering centered around Jesus himself. So the church is by definition one. If you make it not one, you make it not church. It's something else. So see, unity doesn't need to be built. Unity pre-exists in the head of the church who's Jesus. Jesus isn't conflicted. The Trinity's not separated. 
So we don't have to build unity. We just need to grow up into the head of the body. We need to grow up deeper in God. And as we do, we come together in oneness. It's a, it's a reality. So, so in this series, uh, next week, we're going to talk about one people. And we're going to talk about how the church is multicultural and multiracial. In two weeks, we'll talk about one mission, how the church actually only has one mission. And then we'll end with one Savior, and we'll talk about how Jesus is the, is the one Savior of the world. But today, I want to I start with, uh, at this place, I'm just going to call it one tribe. One tribe. Now, I picked the word tribe because it gives us a good picture of the church. A tribe is a group of families kind of going the same direction. Everyone has a role. Everyone has a responsibility, and all the people are there. You have great-grandparents. You have grandparents. You have parents. You have kids. You have young people. You have teenagers. You have babies. Everybody's there. We would think something was wrong with a tribe if we rolled up and saw the tribe, and it had no teenagers and no babies. What would we say about the tribe's future? They don't have one. On the other, however, that is how a lot of churches look. We would also think it strange if we pulled up to a tribe and there were only parents and teenagers and babies and no elders. We would say, where's the depth and wisdom? But we have churches who've kind of sort of gone hipster and think we can just slice a couple generations off and it doesn't matter. For the church to be one church... Every generation needs to be represented. However, this is more challenging than any time in history because for the first time in history, we have five generations above ground. In 1900, life expectancy was 47 years old, which means I'd have died last year. (laughs) Thank God that's changed. Don't tell me everything's gotten worse. Everything has not gotten worse. Some things have gotten better. Right? I'd have died last year. I don't feel like I'm dying. Hope I don't. Let's see. I, I think I'm okay. Life expectancy was 40, 47. Since 1900, it's increased 30 years. So, no time in history have we ever had to deal with five different generational cultures all trying to coexist at the same time. Information is moving at a speed no one's ever seen before. This means you don't have to wait as long as you used to to find out stuff or to learn things. People used to ask their parents for advice. Now they say, hey, Google, should I get married? (laughs) Google, should I take the job? Google doesn't know everything, just a thought. Having five generations is a huge challenge. You may be wondering, why would we talk about something like this at church? Because every generation tends to think it's the next generation's fault what's going on. Or they think it's the past generation's fault. And that's just kind of how how we do. Uh, Also, uh, the real problem, though, is, is not that it's one generation's fault or the other. It's that we don't understand each other. And it's very hard to love people you don't understand. Hayden Shaw, who wrote an incredible book called Generational IQ, who's given 30 years of his life to studying generational culture, says this, if we don't have generational intelligence, we overreact to the small things, ignore the big things, and do the wrong things, and make relationships worse. And and we've all had that experience somewhere. So the disconnection between generations has caused families to drift apart. 
It creates dysfunction in the marketplace and makes the church ineffective. So here's a principle. I'm not going to give you thoughts to write down this morning, but I'm going to give you one thought, and then at the end we'll have one more. Here's, here's the thought to write down. The year you were born shapes how you relate to God. The year you were born shapes how you relate to God. So let me give you an example this morning. We'll start with Generation Z. If you're Generation Z, that means you were born in 2002 or later. How many Gen Zs? Where are the Gen Zs at? How many Gen Zs we got in the room? Gen Zs. 2002 or a few, a few of you. All right. We don't have a lot of information about you yet because there hasn't been time to research you because most of you at oldest are like 18 or 19. So we don't know what your generation is going to be yet. However, I'll throw you a bone. I brought a little video today that shows you what would it look like if Generation Z translated the Bible. All right? So I want you to, I want you to take a look at this. Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. All right. We're just going to do a couple verses today, Brock. So take your time translating it. Yeah. All right. First one. <clears throat> He, the prophet Elisha, went up there from Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out to the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. Little E was cruising and some dudes were roasting his socks off, which made him big mad. So big mama bears came and made the whole squad din-din. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. I used to be a noob, now I'm not a noob. What's a noob? You're a noob. Okay. <clears throat> you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Be salty and lit, fam. How'd you change that fast? Yo, fam always comes prepared with dripping swag. What? Come on, give our Gen Z's a hand. Gotta love them. All right. Now, if you're going to be completely honest, how many of you would say at least half of that I, I didn't understand? At least how... Don't tell me there's not a generation gap. There's a generation gap because every Gen Z in the room understood everything that was said and probably most of the millennials. So what I want to do this morning is I just want to give you quickly a little portrait of each generation. Um, Gen Z, we don't have much on yet, but the other four. Uh, and so here's what I want to caution you on, though. Don't, don't project the generalities of one generation on any individual. Because individuals are individuals. But these are generally too, true about a generation, and that's how they were shaped. Uh, so I, I, I'm also going to warn you, I'm going to give you strengths and weaknesses of each generation. Okay? So, so let's go. Traditionalist. Those of you that were born before 1945. Where's our, where's our traditionalist at? Okay, lift, lift your hand up. Let's see you. Before 1940. Okay, traditionalist. All right. Here, here's what shaped this generation. The Great Depression, World War II, and urbanization. Those are the primary shaping factors. Now, here's the strengths. Because crisis, because war, because the Great Depression shaped this generation, this generation learned to cooperate. 
And one of the strengths of this generation is they're very, very cooperative. I once got in a domino game with about 20 uh, people who were traditionalists. I was the only one who wasn't in their generation. And I'm going to tell you, by the time I sat down, they had already laid the room out, organized the chairs, set the table up, set the dominoes out, fixed the drink, put the napkins out. I, I, I was like, I, I, I hadn't even started yet, and they're done. One of the strengths of this generation is they all jump in and help and get moving. That's one of their strengths. Uh, They also serve with lower expectations. What I mean by that is everything doesn't have to be perfect before they start. They're just going to start. They they grew up in war and in depression. If you waited for everything to get perfect to do something, you'd never do anything. So they don't have an expectation that something has to be polished or excellent or beautiful. They are about getting things done. And so they they move. Uh, The other thing is, is they give faithfully. They understand sacrifice because it took sacrifice for them to get through depression, for them to get through war, and for them to get through the other things. Now, what are the, what are the, ch- the struggles of this generation? This generation um, struggles with purposeless retirement. Now, look, I didn't make up any of these words, and I didn't do any of the research. So, it, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't have an ax to grind any of these. I want you to know that. This is what the research is saying. This generation's parents didn't live as long as they did. So retirement to them, the generation before the traditionalists, was working until you got old and passed away. This generation invented retirement. The problem is you get to retirement and you say, now what do I do? And so there's a struggle with purposeless retirement that basically says, I did my time, now it's the next generation's turn, you take your turn. And this generation struggles with sometimes disconnecting because they say, I sacrificed, I cooperated, I did my job, I got things done. Now what's my purpose? Well, God has a purpose for you if you're on this earth, regardless of your age. Um, This generation tends to cling to the past. In other words, tends to remember it better than it really was. And then they tend to lecture, and I don't want that word lecture to throw you off. I had to wrap my brain around that for a minute. It's not as negative as it sounds. This generation grew up in a time of monologue. There was radio monologue. There was was radio address from the president. Uh, There was a monologue from the previous generation. This generation's mold was set at a time when the way information was disseminated is the people who had it talked and the people who didn't have it didn't talk. And it was monologue. But you know now, we live in a dialogue world. Everything's dialogue. So there's a, there's a struggle about how do we move forward with that. All right, let's go to uh, baby boomers. How many of you are 1946 to 1964? That's the year you're born. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, a lot of boomers. Okay, all right. So baby boomers were shaped, obviously, by the boom. <laughs> there's more of you than we want. No, 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 I don't, I'm, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. There's more baby boomers than any generation that had existed before that. However, the millennials and Gen Z are on pace to pass um, the boomers. But in that time, it was a gigantic generation, affluence, uh, television. And then the, but watch this. As the traditionalists were shaped by sacrifice, the boomers shifted from sacrifice to self. Why? Because of affluence. In other words, what are we going to do with all this extra money? What are we going to do with a booming economy? What are we going to do with these things? Well, I guess we're just going to spend it on ourselves. 
And so they were shaped by that. Now, here's the strengths. Now, this one's a, a, a very odd one. The strengths of the boomers are hyper-individualism. So here's how that works in church. The boomers are the first people that came along and said, listen, I know God is great. I know God is awesome. I know God is transcendent. But is he close? And the boomers were the ones that said, I think we're missing part of our theology. God is actually also close. He's father. He's near. He's close. So, and I can't see how that theology has changed much regardless of the generation that's come after. That's come from the boomers, and I, and I think that's a strength. Boomers raised expectations about quality, about everything. Boomers like polish. So if you've ever sat in a church service and thought, now that guy ought not to be singing in public. You can thank the boomers that they don't sing anymore or play or whatever because the boomers said, listen, excellence pleases God and we ought not to be throwing, you know, every person with a, with a washboard and a kazoo out there in front of the, everybody and say, that's worship. That's not worship. The boomers came along and said, Hi, I think we can raise that up a little bit. Um, psychology. So the boomers are nine times more likely to seek counseling out than their parents. And that's a strength because the boomers began to talk about, um, for example, when people came home from war in previous generations and probably had post-traumatic syndrome, nobody talked about it. It's just something that happened. I think they called it shell shock. Yeah, well, now it's called post-traumatic syndrome. Because the boomers said, I, I, I got to talk to somebody. This is breaking me apart. Now, here's the struggles. Do you notice anything? <laughs> the strengths and struggles are exactly the same. So, do you know the definition of a weakness? It's a strength that doesn't know when to quit. And that's what we have here. The struggles of the boomers are hyper-individualism. In other words, everything is about me, even church. Even, even God is about me. Even spiritual experiences are about me. So that shift happened. Raised expectations. Boomers invented church hopping. People were born in a church or committed to a church and stayed in that church for life. And, and I think one of the most damaging things we've seen in American church life is church hopping. And it was one of the... So here's how, here's how raised expectations lead there. You say, well, this church has good quality here, but this church's quality is a little better than the one I'm at, so I'll just go over there. And it creates a consumer mentality about spiritual life that actually centers spirituality in you rather than in God. And, and, that's, and that's a weakness. And then psychology. Here's where psychology began to replace theology. A lot of what the church believes today is actually grounded in psychology, not in theology. And, and so that's a, that's a whole other issue. All right, let's go to um, Generation X. 1965 to 1980, little bitty generation, small. I'm an Xer. Who, who are the Xers? Come on, raise your hand. I need some friends. There you go. All right, good. Generation X, good to see you. Glad you're here. Glad you showed up. I know we're outnumbered, but hang with me. So Xers are shaped by being squished. The generation behind us and the generation in front of us is gigantic, the two biggest generations in America, and we're squished between. Generation X is shaped by divorce and family changes. Generation X were children of the boomers, and they, we were latchkey kids. That means for the, for the first time, mom and dad both worked uh, 
there was a shift in both parents working, and it created a thing where we just got a key hung around our neck, and you come home, and you let yourself in, and you watch TV, and you fix your own dinner or whatever. And it created a disconnect in the family. At the same time, divorce rate shot up, and at the same time, the family structure began to change. We were also at a time of a changing economy. So the, um, the economy that boomed with the boomers sputtered and struggled with Gen X, and it created um, a different expectation. Generation X is the first generation in American history that is living lower economically than their parents. Every child had had, a, had, had an increase in economic uh, prosperity over their parents before, except Gen X was a step down. Strengths. So the dysfunctional family created a value in Gen Xers for community and relationships. So do you want to know why the number one TV show for a decade or two was Friends? Gen Xers did that. Because what was the little tagline? I'll be there for you. Do, 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 you know. Because your family won't. And, that, and that, was the, that was the view, but it created a value about uh, community. Bringing the spiritual to all of life. In other words, we've been marked in our culture by a pretty significant split between sacred and secular. And Buster, Gen Xers came along and said, wait a minute, isn't God everywhere? And, and aren't spiritual things everywhere? And then life and work over family. So here's the struggles. At the same time, postmodernism came in, and the struggle was there's no absolute truth. No absolute truth. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And then cynicism. Because um, Gen X was raised at a time of um, institutional failure, it created a lot of cynicism. Now let's uh, talk about the millennials. Millennials, 1981 to 2001. Where are you at? Come on, millennials. Yes, look at all the millennials. Love it. All right. I'm not shocked at all that you're the loudest. And I'll show you why in just a moment. It's right here in the notes. Heavy parental involvement. Dad, for the first time, went into the delivery room. So from the time you were born, you've had heavy parental involvement. Millennials are confident. You know why they're confident? Because when they played sports, they weren't allowed to keep score, and nobody, everybody got a trophy. <laughs> right? So it's created confidence. The consumer age. Millennials were raised with so many choices, they need a search engine to weed them out. Uh, look, the millennials, and by the way, the, the Gen Xers call, no generation is to blame for the environment they were raised in. Right? It's always handed to them by somebody else. So, so uh, millennials is the first generation that you see a parent go through a drive-thru and then go across the street and go through a different drive-thru to get food from a different restaurant to make everybody happy. That never happened before. Technology everywhere. 53 hours a week with media because oftentimes millennials will be using more than one type of media at the same time. So you got to count them both. Emerging adulthood. Uh, 27 years is the age that sociologists tell us that marks adulthood now. And that's a whole different conversation. But let, let me do say one thing, a couple things that I think are most un misunderstood about millennials. Millennials are not like the generations prior to it. Most generations say, my parents are old, they're out of touch, they don't understand, I don't want to listen to them. Millennials are the first generation that do not feel that way. They were raised with parental involvement, and they actually want to be connected to their parents, and they want to know what their parents think. They just don't want to be lectured. 
So what you, what you need is dialogue. All right, we'll talk about that in a minute. Here's the other thing. You, we kind, uh, millennials have kind of been cracked on for emerging adulthood lasting later. Again, though, you cannot blame a generation for the environment they were raised in. They didn't choose it. So, but why is adulthood emerging later than any time? I'll give you two reasons. Well, we live 30 years longer. So why start so fast? Well, when I was 19, well, when you were 19, people died at 60. So you see what I'm saying? Right? Well, people, don't, people live longer. Number two, we are, millennials are on pace to average ending work at 75 years old. No other generation is going to work till they're 75. So if you're going to work till you're 75, why, why do we have to get started so early? So here's the strengths. They want to make a difference. They want authenticity. Um, millennials were raised at a time of leadership failure. Pastors were failing. Politicians were failing. Leaders were failing. And, and so they want authentic. And they live and work in teams. Now, what are the struggles? There's contradictions in their own morality. 69% of evangelical young people have sex before marriage. But they are the most mobilized toward moral issues, but don't understand their own contradictions. Church is optional. 90% of millennials think you can have a good relationship with God without church. They tend to misunderstand Christianity because what started with the boomers has now come to full light with the millennials. Psychology has now fully replaced theology. So there's a misunderstanding on what Christianity actually is. Now, maybe you say this morning, um, why, why would we talk about all that? Why would you spend time on a Sunday morning and go through all that? Here's why. And this is the message I want you to get today. Because people matter. And it's, and it's hard to love people you don't understand. It's very hard to love people you don't understand. Some of you are struggling in your relationship at home or with your grandkids or with younger or older generations at work. But God has called us to be one tribe and His church to be one church. Now here's what I want you to know. Here's what the struggle is. The struggle is what the struggle has always been. There's always insiders and outsiders. In the New Testament times, the insiders were the Jews and the outsiders were the Gentiles. Always insiders and outsiders. Sometimes it's the new person at church that feels like the outsider or the new person at your life group or on your ministry team. Or Sometimes older people feel like outsiders because older people say younger people don't care about spiritual things or they don't care about the church. They're destroying the church. When I was young, whatever... Sometimes young people feel like they're outsiders because sometimes younger people say old people are, are frustrated and out of touch. And, and listen, they're always outsiders, but Jesus' vision for his church is that there are no outsiders, that everyone is in, everyone has a role, everyone has a place. I don't know if you caught on, a, if you're not in the Kingwood community group on Facebook, you're missing a lot of good stuff. And I don't know how many of you caught this uh, last week, but our, our social media team posted a picture that I just want you to see that I think is a perfect picture of Kingwood Church. Can you, can you uh, there it is. Do you see that? That's one. That's a millennial hugging a traditionalist. And when I saw that on our Facebook page, I went, that's Kingwood Church. 
That's Kingwood Church. That's what's good about Kingwood Church. Kingwood Church isn't perfect, but in many ways, we're living this oneness. Now, how do you live it out? I'm, give me two, three more minutes. Would you just look back at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2? How do you live out oneness? As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. I I, I wonder if you could just, in your mind, picture... Your, one of your grandparents or your parents or your kids or your adult kids or an employee who's a different generation or someone in our church maybe you don't know, if you could just picture them in your mind for a minute and think, how could I live humility? How could I live gentleness? How could I live patience and being tolerant in love with that person? See, that's not negotiable. That's not negotiable. Who uses the vacuum cleaner? That's negotiable. Whether we buy a weed eater or not. Whether we sing songs we all like or we don't like or none of us like. Whether we do it the old way or the new way. See, all that's negotiable. But what's not negotiable is gentleness, patience, humility, and love. It's non-negotiable. And that's how we become the one church that sends a shockwave through this world that Jesus actually has the answer. He actually is the answer. And he look what he's done with it. Look how he's made these people love each other who don't have anything else to come. Everywhere else in society, these people meet each other. These kinds of people meet each other. They hate each other. They scream at each other. They go to rallies. Just wait till the political season ramps up. It's going to get so ugly. I can't see the answer in politics government Jesus has a vision and let me tell you something this vision will not only work in the church it'll work in the street it'll work in the community it'll work in the school and it'll work in your home humility we've got to allow people the place to ask questions I'll I'll tell you a quick story then we're going to wrap up I'm the only Pentecostal in my family for generations on either side that I'm aware of. And when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, like it, it messed my family up and it kind of messed me up and I didn't know how to reconcile it. And my church culture was one of the cultures that when I went and started asking questions, they made me feel very unspiritual for having questions. Like don't doubt, just believe. <laughs> and then I went off to college and I actually, actually had a class with an incredible professor who explained a lot of things, questions I didn't even think to ask yet, and then questions I had that nobody else seemed to answer. And I got to the point I just hid them because I felt very unspiritual for even having them. And I'm probably still Pentecostal today because of that class. So about five years ago, we had, um, I invited about a dozen millennials into a discipleship group with me that I led. And when the year was over, let me tell you what they said to me. They said, you know what? One of the biggest things we benefited from this group is we kind of feel like it's okay to be Pentecostal. 
Because we had questions and we didn't know how to answer them or where to ask them. And here's what I'm just going to tell you. If we don't give people a safe place to ask, if in your family, if you don't give people a safe place to ask questions at church, if you don't give people, they're asking them, they're going to keep asking them, they'll just keep Googling them. So either they, you can embrace them and let them ask them in the, in the community and the safety and the love of a relationship with you, or you can push them out and say, you shouldn't have questions like that. And I can tell you, that's going to wreck them. It's not doubt that wrecks a person's faith. It's unexpressed doubt. It's when I feel like I can't say it. So would you just stand with me this morning? And I'm going to ask our prayer team to come. And I do want to pray with you before we leave. Every eye closed. And would you just open your heart today? I know this is a different kind of message. But I believe that it absolutely applies, has application to everyone. Just with your eyes closed for a minute, why don't we start with the point of humility? How, what would humility look like today? Well, it would look like you and I saying, God, I want to humble myself today and admit that I need your help. So this morning, if you have a loved one, a parent, a grandparent, a child, an adult child, a nephew, a niece, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, you have somebody in your life who is far away from God. Can I tell you that's not God's plan? God's plan is to bring us together in oneness under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that includes all our relatives and friends and neighbors. And today I wonder if you have a, a friend or a relative that, you, that is a concern on your heart. You say, you know what? I know that they're far away from God. And I don't know exactly how they're going to be reached, but I want to ask today for God's help. Would you just lift your hand up right now and say, I, I've, got, I've got someone in mind. I've got someone. Just lift your hand up. I've got someone in mind. And I just want, I want God to do something today. I want God to do a miracle today. Can I tell you, he's so ready to do it. I'm going to begin to pray for you. And as I do, if you need... If, if you want to see God do something in that person's life, I want you to come and let one of our prayer team agree with you. And if you need, if you need prayer for a relationship in your life, at work, at home, marriage, wherever, I'm telling you, God is a God of healing. He's not a God of division. And God wants to restore. So as I begin to pray for you, if you lifted your hand or you need prayer today, I want you to come. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would draw every person that needs a touch by your presence. Lord, I pray that you draw every person that wants to stand in and say, God, do a miracle. I humble myself now, and I ask you, God, for your help. Come on, if you raise your hand, I want you to come right now. If you, if you need prayer, I want you to come right now as the worship team begins to sing. Holy Spirit, I pray today that you begin a work of healing and restoration and recovery and unity and oneness and forgiveness. Lord, bless today and heal today, strengthen today, minister life today, peace today. God, just minister this morning. You know the enemy can take what I have.
I thank you today for your grace in this place. I thank you for your wisdom. I thank you for the love of God that is displayed through loving relationship. Lord, I pray that you would continue to minister and bless and send us as a light in a dark world. In Jesus' name. As the worship team continues to sing, if you need to be dismissed, you can be. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you today. God bless you. Oh, you call me out of dark.